Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Uh, those of you who have your Bibles here, um, you're welcome to open up at Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm just going to be sharing a bit from Nehemiah. We've been um, under construction for a while. If you just look behind you, you'll see we're still under construction. Our building is under construction, but... Uh, when we realized last year that uh, we're going to have to do some building on, 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 on the, the hall, we realized it's such a great opportunity <clears throat> to just physically reflect what is spiritually true of all of us, and individually, and of us as a community, that we are under construction. All of us are <clears throat> in the process of being built, or we hope we are, <laughs> because all of us are imperfect. All of us haven't arrived yet, you know. It's, it's like when you're driving with that GPS. Um, when, you, when you get to your destination, it says, you have arrived. <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit is not a GPS, and he's not going to tell you this side of eternity that you have arrived. <clears throat> We're all under construction. We're all growing. So, so if you're not perfect yet, and, and you still feel that there are things that God's working on and that people need to, for safety's sake, uh, wear steel-tip boots and hard hat around you because you're a construction site, you're most welcome here. This, you're going to fit right in because this is a, a community under construction. Now, the problem with being under construction is um, we often don't see the progress that well. I mean, you have to sometimes look back to where you were. Just if I put up that picture up there, let me just see if I can... If you, put up, if you, if you look at that picture where we were, we, we're a lot further than we used to be. But we, we, we're not where we want to be, but we, we're not where we used to be either. And that's true for us um, corporately, but it's also true for us as individuals. So, um, you are not where you want to be. If you're a normal person, probably there's some sense of discontent of things in your life that you're not entirely happy with. Things in your life that you're not entirely satisfied with. Things in your life where you think, okay, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't overcome this in this area of my life yet. I'm struggling in this area of my life. Um, and into that discontent and that, just that sense of, you know, frustration sometimes with the fact that you haven't arrived yet, it's very easy for the evil one to come and bring discouragement and criticism. Especially because a lot of the criticism is actually valid criticism okay and what we're going to read this this morning is uh, Nehemiah and um, his band of um, exiled Jews who'd returned to Jerusalem rebuilding Jerusalem but experiencing a lot of criticism experiencing a lot of attack verbal attack and what the evil one wants with his verbal attacks with his criticism is one thing he wants to discourage us he wants to discourage us. And we know it often works because we often do get discouraged. And as we're going to see, the discouragement comes from when we either look at ourselves or look at our enemy instead of looking at God. So, you know, the Holy Spirit has already highlighted that truth that we must look unto Jesus because that's the only way we will not be discouraged. So, Nehemiah 4 let me just actually read that for you. Nehemiah 4 from verse 1 to 6. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, 
What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they re- restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down this wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn the insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. The ESV said they have provoked you, God, to anger in the presence of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, and the people, for the people worked with all their heart. And Lord God, we just want to thank you for your word, and, and we pray, Lord God, that you'll instruct us, Lord Holy Spirit, from your word. Please teach us, Lord, um, from your word. Teach us to how to deal with discouragement, how to deal with ridicule, how to deal with attack, how to deal with criticism. How to not be distracted by what the evil one throws at us in Jesus' name. So I just want you to, for a moment, just, just quiet yourself, close your eyes, and just think of somewhere, um, some area in which you received criticism. It doesn't have to be recent. It can be long ago. But just think of, of, a, of a situation in which you were trying to do something and you received criticism for it and you received discouragement from it uh, uh, in the midst of it. And you became discouraged. Just bring that thought up into your mind. If, you, if you've brought up some memory of being criticized and attacked verbally and discouraged, then you'll know that the place where it hits is in your heart, in your emotions. And probably with those memories come, come that same flood of emotions, those negative emotions, that discouragement of, oh, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not going to make it. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe this is just wishful thinking. And you become uh, discouraged uh, with that. So what we're going to look at, and, and just three things I want you to see in this passage, and then I'm going to share a fourth thing as well, is... Um, the structure of the passage is very simple. It just shows us the problems they face. Then it shows us the, the, the prayers they offer, and it shows us the progress they make. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few things about that. So firstly, what Nehemiah was doing with the Israelites was, was no easy thing. They, were no, they weren't professional builders. They weren't professional soldiers. They were exiles who had returned from captivity from Babylon having been slaves for 70 years, returned to the promised land, and the walls of Jerusalem had been in ruins for decades. And they tried to rebuild it before, and they'd been stopped. So it it was a situation where they'd already failed, struggled and failed in the past, and now they were trying to start up again. And what's interesting to me is that a wall is a defensive measure, right? You build a wall to protect And then you have to ask yourself, why, if it's a defensive rather than an offensive measure, are there enemies? Why is Sambalat so angry about it? You see, the the reality is our enemies don't want us to be safe 
or flourish. And of course, yes, Sambalat is acting under the, what shall we call it, the prompting of Satan. And he's also representing Satan. And our ultimate enemy, we know the New Testament says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against evil spirits. And just like there was an evil spirit behind Sambalat and what he was doing, there's an evil spirit behind um, the attacks. And, and he either attacks through people or he attacks us directly. But he tries to do the same thing. He tries to discourage us. Um, you see, our enemies, and especially Satan, he wants to control us. He has this idea that for, for things to go well with him, it must go badly with us. If we're safe, he can't control us. He can't manipulate us. He can't attack us. And that's all he wants. He wants to be able to attack us. So, uh, Sam Ballat responds here much like Satan does. And um, why, why rage and ridicule? He was angry because he was losing his control over them. And the first and easiest way to attack is ridicule. Okay, notice he asks five questions. Okay, rhetorical questions. And Questions filled with sarcasm and ridicule. Because it costs nothing. It's easy to do. It's, it's, the, it's an easy first step. And he knows if he can break your morale, if he can break your will, if he can discourage you, then you won't be able to go on with what you're doing. And you won't be able to fulfill God's calling on your life. But he's very clever in terms of, um, of, of what he does. Um, let me also just mention this. Who sent Nehemiah? to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The king of Persia, right? The same king of Persia was ruling over Sambalat. So Sambalat, also another reason why he uses ridicule and words to try and discourage is because actually he doesn't have the right to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the walls and, and fulfilling the king's order, which Nehemiah brought letters to confirm. Okay? And, and Satan is in a similar situation. He has a problem because there's a royal decree backing us up and giving us the right to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the, uh, to, to rebuild the church. And he knows that. And um, one of the, the few things that he can easily do is attack with, with his words. But notice um, Sam Ballot's words and how he attacks. If you, if you just look at those five questions um, that he asks, he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones to life? Um, and, and, and he does, two, he sort of has five questions. The first two go together. Um, if, you, if you look at, at these first two, they, they go together. Yet what is he doing here? He's, he's attacking their character. Notice there, he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Those pathetic Jews, what are they doing? Now he's attacking their character. Will they restore their wall? Will they do it? Are they able to do it? A bunch of amateurs, a bunch of losers, a bunch of you know, barely freed slaves? Will they do it? And the first thing that the devil likes to attack is our character. He likes to attack our identity. He likes to, to, to tell us that we're pathetic, that we're losers, that we're incompetent, that we don't have what it takes to do what God has called us to do. And the second thing that he does here, you know, he says, will they finish in a day? 
And then he talks about the stones. Will they bring these stones to life again? In other words, what is he attacking there? He's saying not only don't they have the, the character and the competence, they don't have the resources. They don't have the resources. They don't know. They haven't counted the cost. They don't know how long this is going to take. And they, I mean, the stones they have, it's, it's rubble. It's been lying there for decades. You know, it's probably overgrown with moss and stuff. And it's been burned. Limestone that is burned is brittle, you know. So they don't have what it takes. They don't have the resources that it takes. In other words, what is he, what is he saying? And, and what he's doing here is such an accurate reflection of what Satan does. If you think about what God has called you to do, and, and I'm not, you know, we believe strongly that God has not just called us to work out there in the world so that we can earn money to make, you know, make disciples and evangelize people. You know, the world, uh, your workplace is not just a place to evangelize people. By all means, be a witness. And by all means, show people Jesus. Share your testimony. Come to share and learn how to share your testimony effectively so that you can, that's one of the things that you must do. But your work itself is a calling. Because if you're doing good work, you are not only creating jobs, but you are serving people. You are either creating goods or services that are serving people. How, how does God provide to the people of the world? The Bible says that God provides every good thing for every person. He provides food. He provides, how does, how does he provide food for people? How does he provide milk for people? Through a farmer, right? He has a farmer who, who has cows and who milks those cows and then sends the, the milk to the... Um, so this might be news for some of you. Milk doesn't come out of a bottle or a box. It actually comes out of a cow, you know. They send it to the shops and they put it in a bottle or a box and then someone buys it and they drink the milk. God takes credit in the Bible for providing that milk. But how does he do it? He does it through the worker and the farm who's milking the cow. He does it through the farmer who's, who's um, you know, raising the cow. He's doing it through the, the guy at the shop who packs the, the milk on the rack and sells it to you. All of those are, in a sense, God in disguise. If, God, if the Bible is right, that it's God doing it. So, whatever you are doing, in a similar way, it is God doing it through you. If you are a teacher, then God is teaching children through you. If you are a policeman, then God is protecting people through you. If you are an entrepreneur, then God is creating jobs through you and creating wealth through you. If you are an artist, then God is creating beauty through you to inspire people. And all of those are ways of loving people. And all of those are callings. So here's the thing. A big part of our calling is making disciples. But another big part of our calling is figuring out what God has called us to do through the actual work that he's given us. Whether that's being a filmmaker or a teacher. Or, and, and for some it's more difficult than others. I mean, you know, <laughs> what, what is your calling if you're a lawyer, you know? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious, you know. But lawyers have, have this bad reputation, you know. And, and they are, they're the butt of many jokes. <laughs> you know? They'll make jokes like, you know, uh, why, why do scientists, why, why are scientists starting to use lawyers in, in their tests rather than rats? Uh, they're less likely to get attached to the lawyers. 
So the poor lawyers, the poor lawyers are the, are the butt of many jokes. But, but think about it. What do, what do lawyers do? <laughs> what, what do lawyers do? Lawyers work with relationships. The law kicks in when relationships start breaking down. So lawyers try and rectify a right relationship through the law. When couples want to divorce, when contracts are broken and a, and a, and a business relationship has gone sour and, 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 and there's been injustice, lawyers try to restore those relationships. I think that's a noble calling. I think you can actually do that to the glory of God and as a calling. And, and, and probably if you do that as a Christian lawyer, it will look different from if you do it um, from a worldly perspective. So, but, but, but here's the thing. If what you are doing is a calling, whether you are a mother or a teacher or a business person or whatever, or engineer, if what you're doing is a calling, then Satan's going to attack you in the same way that he attacked Nehemiah and his calling. He's going to first attack your character and, and say, you are severely overestimating yourself. You, feeble Jew, are you going to rebuild this wall? Are you going to fulfill this calling? You don't know what it takes. You're overestimating yourself. And what's more, you're underestimating the work. You're underestimating how long it's going to take, and you're underestimating what the resources it's going to take. You don't have the resources. You don't have the commitment. And he attacks our character, and he attacks our calling. Anyone experienced that? What does he want to do? He wants to discourage you. That's all he wants to do. But in the middle, in the center one, hang on, where did I go now? There we go. In the center one over here. Fool that he is, Sam Ballot, gives the solution. He says, will they make sacrifices? What, what is he saying? He, he, he's clearly not a very religious person, so he doesn't want to mention God by name. But, he, but he's basically saying, will they make sacrifices to entice their God? Because they can't do this themselves. They're going to need some, their God to do this on their behalf. Will they make sacrifices to entice their God to help them? And you know what, um, what Nehemiah's response is? He turns to that God. That very God that Sam Ballot won't even mention. That he'll only sort of allude to through, in, in, indirectly through sacrifices. He turns directly to that God. But Tobiah, Sam Ballot's um, you know, friend, he, he adds in his, you know, just to, to, to Sam Ballot's sarcasm, he adds his own contempt in verse 3. Um, he says, you know, even if a fox goes up on this wall, it'll be destroyed. You know, it's a, it's not only, they're not only feeble Jews, they're building a feeble wall. And the reality is Jerusalem and the building of Jerusalem represents, Jerusalem represents the church. And many people look at the church and they say, this is a feeble wall. In fact, I, I think that it's probably accurate to say that most people find it harder to believe in the church than to believe in God. Right? And, and understandably so. <laughs> You know, when you, when, you, when you just look at us on surface level, we don't always look that impressive. I mean, there are many Christians who right now, on a Sunday morning, are not in church. They're sitting at home or sitting somewhere else, doing something else. Why? Because they don't believe in church anymore. They say they believe in God, but they don't believe in church anymore. And... Um, Maybe they've heard the despising and the contempt of those who attack the church and they've agreed with it. 
And the question is, are you willing to be part of a wall that is despised? Where the world says, no, you shouldn't just be another brick in the wall. Are you saying, well, I want to be a brick in this wall. I want to be a stone in this wall. Why does Sambalat, why do Sambalat and, and, and Tobiah want the Jews to be despised? Why does Satan want us to be despised? He wants us to be despised because we remind him of the God whom he despises. And that's why he wants us to be despised. And the reality is our enemy, Satan, will always want us to be despised. Are you willing to be part of a people who are despised? That's part of being in the church. So they only sort of allude to God and, and say, you know, maybe they must make sacrifices. You know, will they make sacrifices to entice their God? Nehemiah doesn't respond to them. He just turns directly to God and he prays that prayer. And he says, you know, God, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Um, the builders, we, we, you know, our enemies, the one mistake that they make is, is exactly that. They forget to take God into consideration. And we should not forget to take God into consideration. Their criticism is designed to either make us focus on our environment, we don't have enough resources, or on ourselves, we don't have enough character or competence, or on them as our enemies. Our enemies are fierce. The one thing they cannot afford for us to do is to focus on God. I heard someone say, and, and this is so beautiful to me, Mark Smithers said, when I look at myself, I, 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 don't, I don't see a way for me to be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see a way for me to be lost. When I look at myself, I don't see a way for me to be saved. But when I look to Jesus, I don't see a way for me to be lost. I am so fallen and so weak and so sinful that if it depended on me, there, was, there would be no way for me to be saved. But Jesus is so great and so loving and so powerful and so merciful that if it depends on him, he can even save me. He can even save us. Um, and, and that's what prayer does. Um, firstly, just, just notice, notice this. Um, because people read the prayer and, and Nehemiah seems to be very harsh in that prayer. He's calling for, for their, what they are doing, their ridicule to fall on their own heads. He's calling for them to be you know, subject to plunder in, in a land of captivity, which was exactly what the Jews experienced. He's calling for God not to blot out their sins uh, or their iniquities, but to remember their sins and to not forgive them. That's harsh. Well, that sounds harsh, right? But remember this. This is not personal vengeance, first of all, that Nehemiah is calling for. So it's not like a, a Matthew's you know, 18 situation where his person is slighted and there needs to be reconciliation. But you might ask, but what about all this neighbor love? And Jesus in, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies? <laughs> Notice what's happening here. Nehemiah goes in the first three verses from describing the attack upon them, the problem that they're facing of, 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 of this attack by their enemies, and he jumps which is described in the past tense, narrated as this is what has already happened. And then he jumps into the prayer, but the prayer is in the present tense. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. So it's as though, you know, they were writing the story and then they just took like, you know, the prayer that Nehemiah just sort of, as a knee-jerk reaction, prayed when he heard this. 
attack to discourage the people. You know, it, he prayed it as a knee-jerk reaction, and whatever scribe was sitting nearby sort of just wrote down the prayer. Hear us, O God, for we are despised, you know. You know, let their taunt fall upon their own head, you know. And he just wrote it down word for word, and they just took that word for word prayer as it was written down by the scribe and just, you know, copied into the book of Nehemiah years later when they actually wrote the book. And it takes you sort of back to that very moment of dismay. And it shows you that that prayer, it comes so suddenly and in the present tense, that it, it wasn't a prayer that Nehemiah had thought through. He hadn't thought, okay, what is the theologically correct way to respond <laughs> to this attack, to this discouragement that is coming our way? It was a pre-reflective outburst where he just vented his emotions to God. And guess what? It's okay to pray like that. It's okay to pray like that. God wants us to pray. Have you read the Psalms lately? The Psalms which were inspired by David, who was a prophet, and, and whose words you know, color and beautify many of our hymns and choruses. Have you read them lately? I mean, some, sometimes he gets like, he just vents with God. And what he says, I mean, you think, you, you almost cringe at it. And you're just like, whoa, this is heavy. You know, this, is, this, is, this looks mean, you know. This looks theologically incorrect. This even looks disrespectful towards God. You know, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What's going on here? What's the lesson we must learn there? The lesson we must learn is that we cannot afford biblically, it would be biblically incorrect to only pray nice, safe, clear, filtered, theologically correct little prayers after we've sort of thought about them and thought, you know, let me put my best foot forward with God. That's not true prayer. There has to be a place where you just vent with God, where you just pour out your emotions, where you just bleh, you know, just let it out, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not truly praying the way that David and Nehemiah prayed. Let me... Now, of course, there's also a place for, you know, praying all, you know, beautiful prayers. And, and usually David... When he, um, when he starts off his prayers, and especially his prayers of lament, and he just vents before God, and he just, you know, lets rip with his emotions. But then as he continues praying, God actually starts touching his emotions and leading his heart. And then often he'll, he'll end up praising God and, and, and thanking God and, and sometimes being more gracious. <laughs> Listen to this. Um, Andy Stanley says, um, Criticism strikes an emotional chord in us. That emotion must go somewhere. To reflect it back on our critics is to play their game. To bottle it up inside can result in depression or ulcers. Another option is to dump it out on someone completely unrelated to the situation, a spouse, a friend, an employee, or your children. The only, uh, that only complicates things. The only healthy and profitable thing to do is to pour out your heart, your emotions, to your Heavenly Father. R-rated words and all. After all, we know that, uh, after all, he knows what's in our hearts anyway. And hey, he's been around. He can, handle a little of, uh, he can handle a little venting. He is honored when we take our deepest frustrations and hurts to him. To do so is an expression of trust. That kind of honest communication is necessary, is necessary if we are going to develop intimacy with the Father. you agree with that? But 
How few of us actually pray like that? How few of us are that real with God, that raw with God, like Nehemiah was? Very few of us, I dare to say. It's something that I'm, that God's really challenging me on. He's saying to me, you know, you need to become childlike in your prayer again. What, what do children do? Do they filter what they say? Not at all. Not at all. They, they have no sense of the appropriate. <laughs> A little three-year-old, especially when children are just starting to, to talk. You know? and, and that's the picture that God holds up before us. You know? um, we have not received the spirit of fear again to bondage, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, the word Abba, um, you know, is, is a word that a little baby can say because you don't need teeth to say it. Just like Dada, you don't need teeth to say it. Or Papa. Okay? So, so that Abba Father is the heart's cry of a child. And, and, and part of what God wants for us is for our prayers to be unfiltered, childlike, even inappropriate sometimes. He wants us to sometimes pray these knee-jerk reactions where we just pour out our hearts to him. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is we don't. We're afraid to do it. Sometimes we just don't believe that, that he wants to hear our prayers and that he cares. So here's what God does. He gives us problems. Just like he gave Nehemiah. Criticism. Things go wrong. Difficulties that we cannot handle. What must we do then? We must go into prayer. In other words, the problems drive us into prayer. And, and here's the good news. God loves us so much, he'll give us enough problems to drive us to our knees. <laughs> Aren't you glad he loves you that much? And, and the problems drive us to prayer like little children. And, and, and here's the thing. I, I was at a, um, when I was in, in um, Taipei, for that church planting course, one of the sessions that we did was on prayer. Every, you know, in the second week, every last session, and the guy had a beach ball there, and it was. I just love this this thing. Yeah, he had this beach ball there, and he says, "Your selfish, our selfishness, our our, um, you know, all that kind of stuff is like this beach ball, you know, and and then our problems, what we're feeling, what we're really feeling, you know, unfiltered. It's like this beach ball, and then we try and push it under the water. But what happens if you push a beach ball under the water?" Just pops right back up again. What do we do? Oh, I have to push it deeper under the water. <laughs> you know? And it pops right up. Instead of just bringing your beach ball to God, bringing your problem to God, bringing your emotions to God and say, God, I'm struggling with this. I'm feeling selfish. I'm feeling lustful. I'm feeling bitter. I'm feeling angry. Here it is, God. Here's my beach ball. <laughs> because otherwise you're doing your nice little prayer and this beach ball is bouncing around you know, in the back. God knows about your beach ball. <laughs> He knows about your emotions. He knows about your problems. Just bring them to him like a little child. What does that lead to? That leads to progress. Which in turn leads to praise. And then God brings us new problems to drive us deeper. <laughs> deeper into prayer and deeper into trust in him. But here... Here we need a childlike response. And, and these, this progress here, it might be internal 
or it might be external. The progress might not be that the situation changes. The, pro- the progress might be that your heart changes. Or the situation changes, or preferably both. Yeah, listen, uh, some of you are not getting this, how powerful this is. If we have this childlike response of turning all our problems into prayers, then everything that happens to us makes us better, makes us more like Jesus. Do you notice that? And then instead of complaining about our problems, we can praise God for our problems because they make us more like him. They make us more dependent on him. I I can tell you now, God answers prayer. The reason why many of us don't pray that much is because we don't really believe that. If what, what we really believe is given enough time, given enough talent, given enough treasure, we can fix the problem ourselves. Actually, we don't really believe we need God. And that's why we don't pray as often as we want to. We think we can handle the problems ourselves. But part of being childlike is admitting our helplessness, our dependence, our inability to handle our problems ourselves. And bringing them to God in prayer and saying, God, I cannot handle this on my own. I need your help. That's powerful. It's not only powerful because it changes your circumstances on the outside, but it changes you on the inside. Makes you like a child. Makes you more dependent on God. Makes you more trusting in God. Because when the progress comes and God answers your prayer, even if he doesn't answer it the way you want him to, it leads to praise. It leads to more trust in him. And then the next time you have a problem, it's easier to trust him with it easier to pour it out to God in, in prayer because you trust him more okay so um, we said we talked, spoke about the problems they face the prayers they offer now the progress they make um, we mustn't let rage and ridicule discourage us from rebuilding and from fulfilling the calling that God has on our lives There are two responses that we need to problems. The one is prayer, focusing Godward, first and foremost. But the second one is obedience, pray and obey. Just continue doing what God has called you to do. Because a very large proportion of the prayers that you pray, God will answer through you. Because that's how God works. God doesn't, always, God doesn't usually work apart from us. He usually works through us. So he'll pray. That's why you must pray in dependence on God. But then you must obey, trusting that God will somehow make it possible for you to do what you know in your own strength you cannot do. That's also, obeying is as much a sign of trust in God as praying is. So we must pray and obey. Um, We often make the mistake of either working without praying or praying without working. Sometimes we we use prayer as a substitute for obedience. Oh, I'll pray about it. Yes, pray about it, but then obey as well. <laughs> you know, we're going to have a, a baptism service, you know. Um, yeah, by all means, pray about being baptized, but you need to be baptized. You know, so ultimately, you must also obey. 
But sometimes we obey without praying, and that's just as bad. And, and throughout the book of Nehemiah, I hope you've, you've seen this pattern. And if you go and read a few verses on, you'll see it again. You know, they pray and then they set a guard, you know, to protect themselves. That prayer and working are not mutually exclusive like we sometimes think they are. Our prayer reflects our dependence on God and our belief in His sovereignty. Our work reflects His grace at work in us and our responsibility. And both of those should be present in our lives at the same time. Okay, so they built until the wall reached half its height. Um, here's a, here's a, just an a interesting principle I get from that. Anything, I mean, <laughs> they didn't do the work perfectly. And when, they, when the archaeologist, just by the way, dug up the wall of Nehemiah, the, the, the archaeologist who dug it up, I can't remember his name, but he described it as shabbily built. <laughs> I mean, they were building with rubble, and they were not experts. They were not stonemasons and carpenters, and, and, you know, they were just, you know, they were perfumers and priests and stuff like that. We read that in the previous chapters. So they weren't experts building, okay? So the, the wall was a bit shabby. Okay, it was nine meters thick, so it was a serious wall, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't like a thin, you know, shaky wall, but it, was, it wasn't beautifully built, okay? And it was only built up to half its level, half its final height. Here's the principle. Anything worth doing is worth doing imperfectly the first time. So often, we allow our perfectionism to actually paralyze us and prevent us from doing anything. Half a wall shabbily built is better than a whole wall unbuilt. Or like uh, Wayne Gretzky, the famous... A Canadian ice hockey player said, you'll miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So don't wait until you think you can do it perfectly before you start doing it. Just start doing it. And God's gonna, grace is going to be upon you as you do it. And it might not be perfect. But you'll be obeying God. You'll be doing His will. So start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Um, and, and the other thing is it says they built it up to half its height because the, the, the people worked with all their hearts. And, it, and, and, and once you can pray with all your heart, you can work with all your heart. And that's also the connection between praying and obeying. If you can pour out your heart to God wholeheartedly, unreservedly, unfiltered, raw in prayer, then you can also work in that way, in that sort of unfiltered way, that wholehearted way. And that's what we should do. Um, Here's a problem, though. Some of you think, okay, he's going to end the prayer, end the sermon there, and then I must just go and pray and obey, and that's all I must do. You know, when I get criticized, I must pray and obey. <laughs> but some of you are thinking, that's all good and well, but um, what if my enemy's right? What if I am a feeble Jew? What if I'm not competent to do what God has called me to do? What if I don't have the time? What if I don't have the resources? What if, what if my enemy is right? What if I'm not good enough? And um, what if I am overestimating myself and underestimating my task? And, and, the, and the good news is that what God has called us to do is beyond our resources and it's beyond our ability. It's beyond our character. And we should know that from the start. 
When God calls you to do something, it's always something, it's, it's never something that you can do without Him. It's always something that you need Him to do. And we sometimes forget that. We sometimes forget that. The biggest problem in the Bible is humanity trying to do anything without God, trying to find happiness apart from God. That's the biggest problem we've always faced, trying to find happiness in all kinds of other things, trying to trust in all kinds of other things when we should be trusting in God. So I just want to, um, you know, put it this way. Um, in, in, in that taunt, um, Sam Ballot mentions something that is interesting. Let me just put it here. Can, can they bring these stones back to life? Can they bring these stones back to life? And we see that the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem was only symbolic of rebuilding us. Can you guys think of a scripture in the New Testament that is derived from this? About living stones? Dead stones that have been brought back to life again? 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts in him will be never be put to shame. In other words, not only do we need to build, but we need to be built. I always wondered where the living stone pictures come from. Now, it was when I read Nehemiah, it was the first time I noticed that that's actually where it comes from. That we are living stones. That we were dead stones, like Sam Ballot was mocking, but dead stones that have been brought to life. So if your question is, but what if I'm a, I'm a dead stone? What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't have what it takes? The answer is, that would have been a problem to Nehemiah, but it's not a problem for the one to whom Nehemiah points, who is Jesus. And he came to be the builder. And, you know, Satan would... You know, almost you can you can almost say Satan can look at Jesus and say, you know, what is this feeble Jesus doing? Will he rebuild the wall? Will he make sacrifices? <laughs> Will he complete it in a day? Is he able to make these dead stones live again? And the irony is, on all five of those questions, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, Jesus was feeble when he hung on the cross. He looked pathetic and he looked weak, but it was the weakness of God is stronger than men. In his weakness, he died, and that was the very victory. Will he complete the wall? Will he rebuild? Yes, he will do it. <laughs> will he make sacrifices? No, he won't make sacrifices. He'll make one sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the sacrifice of himself. Will he do it in a day? By all means, he'll do it in one day. He'll save the world. Will he bring these dead stones to life and build them into a, a holy spiritual temple for God? Yes, he will. He will not only save them individually and bring them to life, but he will build them into a community, a wall, where they are fitted together perfectly, where they carry one another's weight, where they belong, and where they can serve one another. He will do all of that. 
Um, and the interesting thing is, um, you know, when you look at Nehemiah's prayer for strict justice, you know, bring their taunt upon their own head, you know. What they sow, let them reap. Jesus didn't pray that. He, he didn't pray, let them receive strict justice. He said, Father, I'll take the strict justice so that I can pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that even dead stones that are as dead as Sambalat himself can be made living stones and built into the temple of God. Paul the Apostle was such a dead stone. God turned his heart and built him. Didn't only build him into his temple, into his church, but made him one of the greatest builders of his church and built through him like few others. So, when I look, I mean, that, that in a sense, that, that solves two problems. Yes, we are dead stones. We don't have the character that it takes and the competence that it takes, but he makes us alive and he gives us what we need. But not only that, he, he gives us the resources by his grace because he makes us part of a community that has more than what we have. And he, he makes us part of a people who, who fills in the gaps that we have, that have talents and gifts and anointings in areas that we don't have so that we don't have to fulfill our calling alone so that we can do it together with one another. So if I look at my enemies, I don't see how I can be saved. If I look at my resources, my environment, I don't see how I can be saved. If I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But if I look to God, I don't see how I can be lost. Because he is such a great God. He was willing to be the cornerstone Yes, this wall is despised, but it has a cornerstone. God laid himself as the cornerstone of this wall. It might look feeble to the world, but it will never fall. Go and read up on church history. Guys like Sam Ballot, under the inspiration of Satan, have been trying to destroy the church for hundreds and thousands of years, and they've failed spectacularly every time. They've been burning Bibles. They've been, I mean, right now, in dozens of countries in the world, from Nigeria to Singapore, churches are being bombed. And the devil is trying to destroy the church. And he's saying like Tobiah, you know, even if a fox walks onto that feeble wall of theirs, it's going to fall. It hasn't fallen. Not only has it outlasted all of its enemies, it's growing faster than anything else in the world. Because we have a cornerstone. God himself is part of our wall. I don't care if this wall is despised and if it looks feeble on the surface. I want to be part of the wall that God is a part of. I want to be part of the wall that God is building. Do you? Let's just close our eyes for a moment and just focus on the Lord. And there might be some of you here this morning who are still dead stones, metaphorically speaking, still part of the rubble of life, if I can call it that way, burned, broken, damaged. And you look at your life and you, and you think to yourself, it's, it's not only sickness, it's death. I'm dead. 
I don't, I don't need medicine. I need resurrection. I need God to radically change my life. Well, the good news is he can radically change your life. He can bring dead stones to life. And if that's you this, this morning and you, you feel like you don't have hope when you look at yourself, then my suggestion is look to Jesus because he, the one who was dead and is alive again, can make you, though you are dead, alive again. He can give you new life. So as our eyes are closed, I just want to ask, is there anyone who wants to respond to that invitation? When you come as a dead stone into contact with the cornerstone, you are made a living stone. Is there anyone who says, I need that? I need to be in contact with the cornerstone so that I can be a living stone. If that's you, just put up your hand and say, Henny, I need you to pray with me and I need you to pray for me. Okay, we're going to pray together afterwards. But then if you are a Christian, if you are a living stone, if you are born again, what does Jesus do with living stones? He builds them into his temple. In other words, he places them not where they want to be or where they feel comfortable, but where he has chosen them to be. He builds them in so that their weight rests on the stones below them and the stones above them rests their weight on them. Are you so built into a community, into this community, that if you get taken out, other people will fall out? Have you allowed God to really build you into this community as a living stone? I think none of us are as thoroughly built in as we ought to be. So I just want you to close your eyes, my fellow Christian, and I want you to ask God and say, God, build me in. Lay me as a living stone into the place you want me to be. Even if this, that means some responsibility that I need to take that I'm hesitant to take. Responsibility for other people. Just say, God, build me in. I want to be part of your wall. The only way you'll grow is if you commit to that kind of close community. So just in your own words, say, Lord, I'm, I'm your living stone. You've made me alive, but now build me in thoroughly into your temple where you want me to be. Lord, we just want to honor you and praise you, Lord, that even though we are despised by the world and by Satan and those who are under his control, Lord, that we are loved by you and precious to you. And we are willing to be hated by the world in order to be loved by you. Who cares what the world thinks when the one who matters most, when we accepted and loved and cherished by the one who matters most. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will encourage us with that thought, every single one of us. And I pray, Lord God, that as living stones, Lord, we will, Lord, again become like children, like Nehemiah, where we, Lord, pray as a knee-jerk reaction to problems that come our way, that we'll turn every single problem that comes across our path into a prayer that'll lead to progress and that'll ultimately lead to praise to your name when you bring us through it. Lord, I just pray your blessing upon all of your saints, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that, that as we go out into the week, Lord God, we'll know, Lord God, that even if we don't fully have what it takes, even if we overestimate ourselves and underestimate our resources, 
Lord, our enemies underestimate you because you give us everything that we need to fulfill our calling. Your grace is sufficient for us. And I pray, Lord, that every single person here this morning will go out, Lord, with that conviction in their heart that it doesn't matter that the world is intimidating and against them because you are for them and you'll never leave them or forsake them. And you are enough. If we have you, we have enough. And like little children, we believe that. And like little children, we constantly want to pray as if that is true. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. I I just feel God wants us to start with a simple prayer. I feel God wants us, all of us, to ask, Lord, teach us to pray. So just in your own words, just close your eyes and just say, Lord, teach me to pray. Not, Not just teach me what to pray, but teach me to pray. Teach me to be a praying person. And if that involves problems that I must turn into prayer, then, then that's what I'll do. Because I want to learn to trust you like a little child. Teach me to pray. Yes, Lord, teach us to pray. Like little children. And we look forward to in the weeks and months ahead, experiencing how as a good father you take us by the hand and teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, just bless all your people as they go. And I pray, Lord God, that they'll go as witness and worship to you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.